All right, will you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy? I'm moving up the daily Bible reading, a couple of uh, chapters. And uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, specifically speaking. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Charles Stanley wrote a book many years ago entitled, Keeping Your Kids on Your Team. Now, why do you think he wrote that book? Obviously, because we as parents are concerned and fearful and apprehensive about what's going to happen to our kids. And so he wrote a book to help us to understand that there are some things that we can put in place as parents that will help us to be more at ease. And to understand that God's in this child-rearing situation with us. And that there are many things that we can do to encourage faith in our kids. Deuteronomy addresses parenting from a father's perspective. It addresses fathers. It addresses grandfathers. It addresses children. It addresses grandchildren. But I want to start by whetting your appetite with two verses, verses 5 and 6, 5 and 6 in chapter 32. Now, they sound like they might be out of context, but you'll see that the context is going to be very, very clear. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you, created you? And has he not established you, given you a land and a nation and a place to live and a place to grow and a place to serve him? So verse 5 says, you know what? You guys are corrupted. You're filthy. You're filthy dirty like I used to be when I would come in from out in the woods playing all day in the woods and getting myself dirty and mom saying, oh my goodness, straight to the bathtub. Straight to the bathtub. I mean filthy dirty. And that's what corrupt means. So much so that I don't even recognize you as my children any longer. Now, Moses is speaking in behalf of the Lord. I don't even recognize you as my children. You are a perverse and crooked generation, and the Apostle Paul in the New Testament uses this actual terminology to describe the day and the age in which he was living when he talked about general society. And then he said, is this the way you treat the Lord? I mean, With all that the Lord has done for you, is this the way you're going to treat him by the way you live? Now, let's go back and get a little bit of more context on this because we're going to finish off with the whole context beginning at verse 1 through 14. But before we do that, I want you to flip back to verse 30, chapter 31, verses 19 through 22. Because I want you to see here how frustrating this situation has got to be. 
For here's God who is raising his children, the Israelites, and this is what he has to say through Moses in verse 19. He says, write down, the, now therefore, don't worry about that. The context is going to be not just before, but after as well. Write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me, capital me, God, a witness for me against the children of Israel. A witness for me against the children of Israel? What's that all about? What's that all about? Verse 20, when I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant. Now, that word covenant is a pretty strong word. Covenant is a, a word that lets you and me know that this relationship that I've established with the Israelites is really tight. It's strong. And I'm committed to it. And I'm going to be faithful to it. And the only way that that will be broken is if one side or the other is going to violate the covenant. And then, of course, there will be consequences for that. Not that I will stop loving Israel, but Israel will suffer the consequences of turning to other gods. In verse 21, he says, Then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify against them as a witness. For it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants, their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. For I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. Therefore Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. Now there's an interesting sidelight here that Moses gives to us in verse 27. Moses no doubt agrees with the Lord. He has seen the struggles of the children of Israel. And in verse 27, notice what, he, what, what we have. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? I mean, Moses... Moses can read the handwriting on the wall here. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn away from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days. Because you have provoked him to anger. Now, that's not a very encouraging passage of Scripture. That's very discouraging. But the song that Moses was instructed to write begins in chapter 32. And there's some positive things here. And the one thing that I want to share with you today is that there is one key thing that we... There's tons of things that we can do as fathers in raising up our children. But if I were to challenge you as fathers, I would challenge you with the one thing that stands out clearly in this passage of Scripture that God expects all of us to do. 
Now, here's how the song begins. In, Je- in verse 30, it said, Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. Now, that song is pretty long. It goes all the way to verse 43. We're going to be stopping short of that. We'll stop at verse 12. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Now, you can think of a tune maybe to go along with that, but the point is these words are critical for us. And Moses is saying, I want heaven, I, heaven. I want all the stars, I want the moon, I want the sun, I want all the planets, I want everything in the heavens to, to come and listen to what we're going to be singing here. That's personification, of course. It's very appropriate in poetry. And I want the earth to hear. I want the mountains and the seas. And I want everybody to gather around. Everything to gather around. And I want you to hear the words of my mouth. Because what I'm about to say, I hope, is like drops of rain, gentle rain. Do you see that in verse 2? Now, that's a good thing, right? Oh, I thought it was getting into scolding here. Not yet. Not yet. But I want my speech to distill as the dew. Number three, I want raindrops. I want them to be as raindrops on the tender herbs and as showers on the grass. Now, that's a word picture with all of those, those four different things there. Is a, is a word picture that says to me, I want what I'm about to sing to be refreshing to you. I want it to really sink deep into your hearts, and I want it to encourage you. That's, that's what he's talking about. I, I, I don't know of any other way to, to, to really explain this. You and I know what it's like after there's been a drought, and all of a sudden the rains come. We used to stand up there on the hill on Spoggy Hollow Road where I lived, and we used to stand up there in the back where we could look down through and see the whole valley there. And when there hadn't been any rain for a long, long time, and we had to get water down here at the well. Um, boy, when we hear there would be a, a rain, rain come, we would stand up there and we'd watch the clouds roll in. And we would just stand there and then just enjoy the rain. At the animal kingdom down in uh, Florida... I had the privilege, I think only once or once or twice, uh, to be on a safari where there's been a gentle rain. And it's a totally different situation. You know, you look at all of the animals, the elephants and the lions and the, and the uh, giraffes, and you look at everything on a common day where the sun is out, and, and they're out there doing their usual things. But I'll tell you what, one time we got on the, we got on the, uh, uh, on the safari, and it, it was a gentle rain. It was totally different. I mean, the animals were playing. They were, you could tell that they were thoroughly enjoying the refreshment that was coming to, us, to them through that gentle rain. I had never seen such activity in all of my life. Well, Moses wants us to feel that way when we look at this song. And he gives us a reason for it in verse 3. And this reason is critical because I think this is what creates the problem for us if we don't see it. He says, for I proclaim the name of the Lord. This ought to be a refreshing song because I proclaim the name of the Lord. I ascribe what? Greatness to our God. He is what? 
the rock. His work is what? Perfect. All of his ways are what? Justice. A God of what? Truth. And he's without injustice. And he is what together? Righteous and upright is he. And once those words sink deep into our hearts and deep into our minds and we understand that and when we think of God we think about him in all of these terms because Moses brings back these terms to us in this song the rock for instance comes back several times he says in verse 18 he says of the rock who begot you you're unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you how does that happen when you forget who God what he does and how powerful he is and how loving and kind and considerate and how he provides for us and how he protects us. That's what happens. And so in verses 5 and 6, the Bible says that they have corrupted themselves. They are not his children. And he's looking ahead. He's looking ahead as well as looking at what's already brewing in their hearts. A perverse and crooked generation how can you possibly treat the Lord this way? So he gives to us what ought to be the remedy to the problem. But before I do, I want to challenge you just a little bit with this illustration on how tough parenting can really be. Because when I see this, God is being, you know, God, God is giving to us a picture of what it would be like if we see him as a parent, a physical parent. He's describing that for us. Because no other way we would be able to understand the nature of God and all of the things he is and does because he's God. So what he does a lot of times in his word is he looks at us, he, he, he looks at us and then he himself as if he were a person responding the way the person would respond, except without sin. Barry St. Clair wrote many, many books, great books on relationships, and we've used them over the years, and um, he's written a book on parenting. He's, a, he's what you call an expert, and he tells us this story, and I, I want you to try to identify with this if you can. Years ago, a couple came to visit my wife, Carol, and me to observe and ask questions about our close and loving family who had successfully traveled down the parenting road. They had recently started their own family and had feelings of inadequacy about raising their children. During dinner, they peppered us with questions, and everything went well until my son, Jonathan, who was about 10 at the time spoke disrespectfully to his mother. Since disrespect meant discipline, I sent him to his room. He left with the chair screeching and his feet stomping. Needless to say, the questions about our close and loving family started to lose a little zip. A few minutes later, we moved downstairs to our den, and on the way, I dropped by Jonathan's room to check on him. I turned the door handle, locked. Jonathan, open the door, I whispered. No answer. I made the request again, turning up the volume just a little bit. This time he yelled his refusal. Dad, get away from my door. 
His voice fell within easy earshot of our visitors. As I came back to the den, interrupting Carol's conversation with our guests, I could feel the tension rising in the discussion about how to raise a close and loving family. A few minutes later, I walked back to Jonathan's bedroom door. When I knocked this time, there was no answer. I knocked more loudly. Still, no answer. I had no choice but to raise my voice to a yell level, hoping our guests would not hear too much of the commotion. When it became clear that my son had no intention of answering, I walked through the den past our parenting disciples, and out the door to get to the window outside his bedroom. Excuse me, I said, red-faced, managing a weak smile in the direction of our company as I passed by. I got to go outside, and I got to go to my son's window. When I got to Jonathan's window, I found it open and his room empty. Great. With perfect timing, he had apparently decided to make the great escape and run away from home. I loaded Carol in the car to search for our runaway son along with our bewildered company who joined in the search. We drove in total silence until we spotted the escapee a few blocks away. He turned, saw our car, and took off running. Though impressively quick-footed, he wasn't quite as fast as a speeding car filled with frantic parents and confused passengers. It wasn't long before we had the little guy cornered and safely captured. We pulled up into the driveway of our home sweet home, and not surprisingly, the couple politely but very quickly excused themselves and left. And you can guess this next. We never heard from them again. Now, what's amazing about this is he goes on to explain how this was kind of, a little, kind of like a breakthrough, and he's been, they've been able to use it for years and years and years now in their parenting, uh, in their parenting um, seminars and, and whatever, speaking engagements or whatever. But can you identify? I want to hear an amen if you can identify with that. It may not be that intense, but if you can identify with that, say amen. So be it. It's true. That's life. That's what happens. That's what happens to our kids. It's tough. And we all go through that. We all go through that. If you're not married yet, you're going to go through it. When you get married and have kids, you're going to go through it. That's just the way it is. Bringing up kids is tough. And we have this great illustration of the Heavenly Father who said, this, is this the way you're going to treat? I have a book in my library entitled, Is This the Thanks I Get? It's all about parents who did everything right as far as they were concerned. No parent's perfect. It's all about parents who tried to do the right thing, and, and then they're looking back and saying, is this the thanks I get? Uh, so this is a frustrating passage of Scripture, no doubt for Moses to write, a song that was difficult, no doubt, to write. But the remedy begins in verse 7. And I want you to see the remedy here, and it's pretty, pretty easy for us, I think, to kind of pick it out. There's not much to it, but what it does tell us is extremely important. So in verse 7, as far as this song is concerned, God says, remember the days of old. 
Consider the years of many generations. I want you to go back. He says, I want the children of Israel, I want children to go back into their past. Now, lots of pasts are, 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 are not good. You and I know that. You and I know that there's a, one reason why, there's, all, there's an adage that's used whenever people want to do a genealogy. And the adage is, you know, there's always a horse thief somewhere in your genealogy, right? You're going to have that. You're going to have those negative situations. It may be your own parents. It may be your grandparents. But listen, you and I have the strength of going back not only to our parents and our grandparents, but our great-grandparents, our great-great-grandparents. And you would have to admit you're probably sitting here today because of the faithfulness of those ancestors of yours. A grandfather or a grandmother, maybe 10 generations back or so, that has set the stage. But remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and then, and then go ask your father. Now, that's why I titled the message, Ask Your Father. Because this is where the test comes. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is what should happen when you ask your father. Your father should be able to give you answers to all of your spiritual questions. Now, you and I know that nobody has all the answers, of course. But your father should be able to do that. Moses said, ask your father and he will show you. Ask your elders, your grandparents, your great-grandfather, and they will tell you. And what are they supposed to be able to tell you? They're supposed to answer the spiritual questions about why we're here, why we're doing what we're doing, what does God want us to do, how did we get here, all of those kind of things. It's, now, you know, you remember the little boy who came up to his dad and he said to his dad, 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 why is the sun yellow? And dad looked at him and says, I, I don't know why the sun is yellow. And he gave a, a litany of questions. He asked his dad a second question and a third question and a fourth question and a fifth question. And every time his dad says, you know, I really don't know the answer to that question. Until finally the sun was a little bit concerned that his dad didn't know any answers and he said dad you're getting tired of me asking all these questions and his dad said no no son how else are you going to learn <laughs> See, it's not like that see the real test here is that you need to be able to go to your father and your father ought to have the ability to show you why you're here and how we got here. Now, the illustration he gives here in verse 7, he says, you ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. And God takes them all the way back to the beginning of creation. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations. When God established the nations. You go back to Genesis, you'll find out that God established 70 nations right off the bat. You, you remember that. And he established 70 nations right off the bat. Not only did he establish that, but he separated the sons of Adam. This goes really back very far. And he set the boundaries of the people. And then he says this very special thing. He says not only was God in control of creation and God in control of the boundaries of nations, God was in control of all of this from the very beginning with the special 
idea and the special thought and the special plan to provide for the children of Israel a portion that he would call his own. You see that in verse 9? Now, I don't know. If I'm a son and I'm listening to my grandfather share all of that information with me, it's going to, it's going to tug at my heart. Especially if he couples it with the fact that God is great and he's a rock and his work is perfect and all his ways are just and God is truth and God is without injustice and he's righteous and upright. It's going to tug at my heart, you see. And then he goes on in verses 10, 11, and 12, and then we're going to stop at verse 12. In 10 he says, he found him in the desert land. Now he's talking about Israel. He found him in the desert land in the wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreads out its wing. What a picture of parenting here. Where an eagle's got to get these little ones, eaglets, out of the nest, and at the same time get them to fly at great heights. How does he do it? How do they do it? You see, they do it by hovering over the young, spreading out their wings, taking them up and carrying them on their wings, catching them in mid-flight when they're tumbling through the air. And then here's the final thought. So the Lord alone led them, and there was no foreign God with them. There it is. There's the secret right there. There is the secret right there. Now, without laboring that point, let me simply say this to you, that if you couple the greatness of God and you understand from the heart who he is and what he is capable of doing and how much he loves you and cares for you, it's going to prevent you, in verse 12, from accepting foreign gods, which is the problem. Now, how do I give that to you in a practical way? Well, this is all about a God that we love and worship and serve because he's the God of the universe. And let me just ask you this question. Why do we come and worship God on Sunday morning? And then next week do the same thing. And next week do the same thing. And next week do the same thing. Why do we do that? Why do we do it? There are many reasons why we do that. But the biggest reason is to prevent us from becoming idolaters. Because if we don't worship God... We have plenty to worship. See, everybody worships something, many things. And if we don't worship God, there'll be other things that we worship, and we'll become idolaters. But God says here there was no foreign God among them, because at this point, at this point, their relationship with the Lord was where it needed to be, and they were worshiping God. You see, we need to look at worshiping God as not an inconsequential spiritual exercise. It has huge consequences. Worshiping God doesn't have to always be on a Sunday morning. Obviously, there's spirit, the spiritual exercise of worship should be all the time through, through our spiritual exercises of prayer and, and Bible study and all of those. I hate to use the word study in that because this should be an exciting for us to go into God's Word and to be excited about what we're learning about Him and His plans and His purpose for us. But see, the point is, 
The point is that worship is not an inconsequential spiritual exercise. There are serious consequences for forgetting about God. And the quickest way to forget God and to exclude Him from our lives is to abandon the spiritual exercise of worship. Wherever and whenever that may be. So, let me say this in closing. If we abandon the spiritual exercise of worship, we will put other things above God. That's a given. But if you couple that with the, the heartfelt information that should be a part of our worship, that God is great, that God is righteous and is upright. If you couple it with that, you kind of fall into what Jesus says in John chapter 4 when he's talking to the woman at the well and he says, I'm looking for, God is looking for true worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's just not going through the motions. We're moved by the awesomeness of God. Our heart is in it. And we respond with the heart, soul, and mind. And right in the context of this passage of Scripture, we have that. In chapter 30, for instance, and it's not just mentioned here, but it's mentioned elsewhere. I want you to look at verses 19 and 20 as we close this out this morning. Because I can't think of any more application. For one of the greatest things we can do in training our kids is to make sure that we're all in touch with worshiping God. Here it is, 19 and 20. I call heaven and earth to witness as witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, what does he say? Choose life that both you and your descendants may live. There it is. How much clearer can we make it? Choose life that you and your descendants may live. And here, here, here's where the worship part comes in. That you may what? Love the Lord your God. That you may what? Obey His voice. And that you may what? Cling to Him. Why? For He is your life and the length of your days. And that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. What an encouragement it is to us. May it be like that gentle rain and the dew that distills on the grass. May it be life to grass and life to tender plants. Oh God, we pray that you would help us to realize the value and the critical, critical, critical need to worship you. Or we'll end up worshiping everything else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.